Hello everybody and welcome back to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. Over the last couple of episodes I've been talking about Plath poems once again, first Electra on Azalea Path and then most recently The Swarm. My guest for both of those episodes was Peter K. Steinberg and I'm joined by Peter once again today to talk about his work as the co-editor of The Complete Letters of Sylvia Plath, his writing elsewhere on Plath including his short biography of Plath and his work co-writing the These Ghostly Archives with Gail Crowther. We also talk about his work on Asia Wevel. He recently co-edited the collected writings of Asia Wevel with Julie Goodspeed Chadwick. Peter is also the sole editor of the upcoming Complete Prose of Sylvia Plath. Now, when we recorded this interview, uh, Peter wasn't able to talk much about the Complete Prose, but towards the end of our conversation, we do just talk about a little about Plath's prose in general terms. Peter also runs the website Sylvia Plath Info, uh, which is a fantastic resource for Plath fans, scholars, podcasters like myself. Uh, I will leave a link to that below. I very much hope you enjoy the episode and do check out the previous episodes on Electron Azalea Path and The Swarm if you haven't already. I began predictably enough by asking Peter where it all started for him and Plath. I first encountered Plath as a junior college in 1994. Um, I was freshly dumped by my first love and uh, decided to, I had I decided I was going to study English as my major. Um, and as a result, I took a sort of intro to poetry course. And, um, you know, we worked our way up from Anonymous and Shakespeare and Don and into the 20th century where, where I started enjoying it a little bit more. And when we got to Plath, uh, Lady Lazarus was in our anthology, and I remember reading it and being absolutely mesmerized. Um, it, it, my personal situation at the time was I wasn't very happy, um, but when I read the poem, I, I sort of was able to see that even though I felt like death, uh, I certainly would recover, and I would, I would rise up from the ashes, just like, just like Lady Lazarus did and that really spoke to me and I went to go ask my professor for more information about Plath um, and he did not recommend I read her and which I thought was was bad advice because I was a very bad student and I had finally found an interest um, and he was trying to dissuade me so I did what any stubborn person would do and I went to the library and checked out every book I could and um, Kind of, and now it's 28 years later, and um, it's the longest phase of my life. Yeah. <laughs> On what grounds did your teacher recommend you didn't read Plath? He didn't particularly care for her as a poet. Um, uh, you know, we did we we studied some of the other sort of quote unquote confessionals, but Robert Lowell and Anne Sexton did not speak to me in the same way as Plath did. And then the more I read about her, I, you know, I read The Bell Jar and Paul Alexander's Rough Magic. Those are the things that I sort of got my hands on first and read those. And, and I became just absolutely fascinated with the life. And that's been a particular strong point for me, uh, more so than uh, literary criticism, which, which I think I'm terrifically bad at. Um, but but in, in the exploration um, and, and sort of investigation into her life, it's just been 
fulfilling in, in so many ways. Uh, so, um, and maybe I should be grateful that he tried to dissuade me and, and that I was stubborn because I, I'm not sure that if he had been encouraging, it would have had the same effect. <laughs> well, I hope he's got some wind of, of, of what you've gone on to write about Plath and contribute to Plath studies. Cause that's... I, I don't, he's dead now. So I'm ah. not sure. Uh, maybe he knows, uh, because that, that's quite a backfire of a, of a recommendation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that was my humble beginning, I guess. And then how did how did you um, come to write about her first? My the first writing that I did um, about her uh, was, I guess, maybe for my website when I first learned of this crazy thing called the internet in 1997. I was searching. Uh, for Sylvia Plath, and there was not very much on her. I was particularly interested at that point. By that point, I was interested pretty, pretty deeply in her life. And I wanted to see some of the places where she lived. Um, the reproduction of images and books were not very good at the time. Um, so I started traveling to Plath places and taking my own photographs. And then I thought, if I'm interested in this, there may be other people around the world who interested in seeing these places sort of in color. So I just started throwing, scanning and putting pictures online and then writing some captiony text about what it was. And then I wrote um, sort of a, a brief biography about Plath so that there would be some sort of way that uh, people could find information out about her on the web. Um, and uh, at one point, I had all of the poems online, but Faber and Faber wrote me an email asking me to take them down. Um, <laughs> and so I, I did. I did immediately. And, and that was kind of fun. And, um, and I just sort of built up the website from there out of a sense of um, I, I, had, I had some feedback pretty quickly from people who would email me thanking me for having this, these things online. Mm. Um, and that was all the motivation I needed to sort of build a bigger website. Um, I remember in 2002, I was going to the first Plath Symposium in Indiana. And I think because of my website, I met a girl on the bus from the airport to the school. And it turns out it was Amanda Golden. And oh, wow. um, yeah, so she had known about the website. And this was only a few years after it had been up. And and that, that kind of tickled me in a way because I and like it was just validation of what I was doing. Um, and later on at the conference, I met a Chinese scholar who um, also thanked me for, for giving him access to the information that was on the website because he didn't have it in books. Yeah, so it was really encouraging and it was really warm. And, and that's kind of been the way I've operated ever since. Um, and it was just, you know, simple feedback and and gratitude and and that did it wow and and what about first um uh pu published writing what how, how did that i have for you? yeah i have no idea how it happened i just know uh <laughs> one day in 2003 i had an email from chelsea house asking me if i would uh write a biography for this series of books they were doing on sort of introductory biographies for high school students or, or mm. um um, you know, not a full-length biography by any means, but just something to give people a, a sense of the life. And I said, sure, because I needed the money. 
and I, and I thought I could do it. And they generously gave me two and a half months to write a book. And What's two and a half months? Two and a half months. And uh, so any faults that exist in my book, I will put down to that and not necessarily to the fact that I'm a terrible writer. I can't, I've just read that book and I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. And I, I cannot believe you wrote that in two and a half months and presumably edited it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Did, did all of it. And, um, that was, so that was the first thing. And then after that, I didn't do really any writing until Plath Profiles, uh, which is a journal that started, uh, 2008 came around and that's when I started writing essays, um, sort of exploring various things, uh, like the number of articles that appeared on Plath's first suicide attempt, the camp that she went to, Camp Helen Storo, you know, just trying to write about things that interested me that weren't necessarily fully realized and, and things that would never be fully sort of discussed in biographies because having written a short biography and having read the very long ones like Heather Clark's, you know, you, you, you have to make decisions about what you include and don't include. And so writing these sort of like essays or, or sort of very, very microbiographies, which is like Pain Parties and Work by Elizabeth Winder is one. Um, to a certain degree, Andrew Wilson's Mad Girls Love Song is one because it, you know, it's only discussing class life up until she meets Ted Hughes. But you're never going to get all the details that you want to get into in a full length book. There's just, there's just no way to do it. So writing, writing shorter sort of essays about very focused topics was something that I kind of got got interested in doing, and then uh, the archive is another sort of thing that I'm I'm rather passionate about, and that kind of led to a, my friendship with Gail Crowther, and we developed these these ghostly archives uh, essays that we worked into the book, and that was you know that was sort of an, an amazing experience in and of itself. Yeah, so that's kind of I guess the my, the summary of of what I think I've done. You said um you said you said in I think the the section on the swarm that you read the complete poems of Plath every year. Um, yeah. How long have you been doing that for and what order do you pick or do you change it? Um I I try to read the individual collections every year and I I read them in the order in which they were published. So Colossus Ariel Crossing the Water Winter Trees and then sort of throughout the year, um, if I need something to read at some point in time, I will just open up the collected poems and read kind of whatever whatever the page opens to. Um, my, my copy is cracked at mushrooms because, you know, the spine is cracked because I think I read that maybe more than anything because um, it's just such a beautiful poem. So I, I do that. And then I read the bell jar twice in a year because I, I just think it's so good. And every, every time I read it, I, I find something that kind of takes on a little bit of a new meaning. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm, I last year I reread the journals in full for the first time in a long time. And, and not to sound um, mean, but I may never read the, the letters of Sylvia Plath straight through ever again. Has that got to do with how how close you've been to them? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. When I when we were preparing the books, I was basically cycling through reading it from start to finish. Um, I think in 2017, 2016 and 2017, I must've read it straight through six or seven times. Um, Gosh. Just trying to make sure that it was, you know, accurate and right. That I was happy with the footnotes and things like that. So um, 
the sense of familiarity with them is is one that just makes me I, I use them as a resource, obviously, but yeah. I, I don't think I I don't think I have the stamina to read through them ever again, sort of straight through. So I I, I admire anybody that does now. Um, my uh, my sister, who does the artwork for this for the podcast, has been reading the letters through. So I, I was I was I was talking to her about uh, talking to you today mm. and um she's been for the last few months she's been just texting me snippets from the letters <laughs> going oh, I, can't, I can't believe this i can't believe this yeah um, and that that's that's actually important it's remember it's not me it's plath plath is the amazing the amazing that's her work um i was i was literally just a person with fingers transcribing letters that's that's the way i look at it but it's a lot i mean you write about the process in the um in the in the Bloomsbury Handbook to Sylvia Plath, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a lot more than just the transcribing. It's a, a absolutely fascinating um, process. Oh, thank you. Uh, just just for the benefit of of the the listeners, could you sort of describe what what the perhaps what 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 was available to people before you um, uh, edited the letters? Because obviously there was there was letters home with Aurelia. Yeah, there was letters home, and that is. I don't know. I, I never did sort of an analysis of how many of the letters are actually complete in that book, but it's, it's heavily exerted. Um, she sent about, I think, 900 letters or 600, maybe 696 is what it really left claims in uh, her forward there. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a glimpse. It's, it's, um, it's a version of Plath. It isn't necessarily Plath herself. And yeah. that's what was available, uh, unless you had the means to go to the archive where you could read them in their uh, unabridged and unedited format, which is just eye-opening. So the, the process that we did was um, uh, first made a list of all the letters that we knew of um, by, you know, by date and by archive and sort of compiled and sort of built up this um, spreadsheet is how I sort of tracked everything um, to kind of try to understand what the world of these letters looks like. And, and I guess when I first started doing it, I knew about 900 or so letters. And then as I visited archives and did research to try to figure out where others might exist through um, auction catalogs and other sorts of things, word of mouth maybe, um, this this sort of list of letters um, grew to 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, and so on. Uh, in the end, we got up to about, I think, 1,424 when the, when the volumes were published in paperback by Faber in 2019. And uh, since then, I've found 22 or three more letters. So uh, maybe one day there will be uh, a new edition or, or something. But the, the process was just get the letters and um, organize them, sort of settle on a, on a creation date for them, or creation dates, mm-hmm. because sometimes letters are written over several days. And um, I would scan everything because I, I preferred to work on the computer for, for this. So I'd have one half of the left half of my screen was the letter and the right half of my screen was a, a Word document. And I would just transcribe what I saw. And so I had up to 1,400, you know, different Word documents. One, one letter was one document. And that was sort of the way I kept track of, of where I was in the transcribing process. Uh, and then it was just proofing and proofing and proofing. Uh, I don't 
I, I know there are mistakes in there which embarrass me, um, but I, th I think there are fewer mistakes than than, um, than there could have been. And then uh, the annotating and, 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 and that process was something I obsessed over because I wanted to try to um, provide a gloss and a footnote for anything that interested me. Um, mm. Thinking that if it interested me, sort of as an, I tried to be impartial, as an impartial editor, um, that somebody out there might also be interested to know where Plath saw a particular movie or play, the location of a book that she read and owned, um, things like that. The, the creation dates of papers and poems and publication dates of short stories and things like that. Just tried to have it be um, a one-stop shop for uh, providing people with uh, really good information about um, Plath and, and, and her experiences she, as she was relating in her letters. Well, it's certainly that. It's, I mean, it's a phenomenal resource for someone someone like me trying to work out what was going on uh, whilst a certain poem was being written. I, it's, there isn't anything like it, I don't think. Oh, thank you. Uh, Thanks. Uh, you, you mentioned these ghostly archives as well, and in which you, you describe your discovering two lost Plath poems. All, all, I really wanted to ask you, what happens when, <laughs> when you discover two lost Plath poems? Who, who do you have to tell... Like, who do you have to not tell? Like, what what what's the protocol? Yeah. Um, well, my first my first desire when when I realized what they were, I obviously I I don't remember if I emailed or texted Gail, but um, mm. it was like at, at you know at the time like when we made discoveries or made sort of anything like that, we just. First thought, boom! Let let Gail know. She would let me know, and, and it was it was a reciprocal sort of sort of thing. And so you you share in the excitement, um, and and then I think what happened was I I let the the archivists know at the Lilly Library because um, it's just a, a this crummy flimsy piece of 1950s carbon typing paper. It was tucked in the back of her government notebook. Um, it had, I don't know how heavily used that notebook is. I mean, government as a subject doesn't interest me at all. And um, based on, I think, the literature, it doesn't interest most Plath scholars at all either. So it was, it was a relatively secure place for such a thing. I don't know how it got there, and that baffles me, because she took the class in 1952, 1953, I think, um, it was either 51, 52, or 52, 53, uh, but that doesn't matter. She took it then, but the carbon dates from, you know, autumn of 1956. So how did it get there? I don't know. And that's sort of, that's the sort of thing that keeps me up at night a little bit, because we'll never know. Maybe her mother put it there. Maybe she put it there. Um, but I let the, I let the archivist know, um, immediately what was on it because um, I recognized what it was because um, the Lily Library has these little pocket calendars that Plath kept in her purse and she would use it throughout any given day to write down things that she did, uh, foods that she ate, movies that she saw, people that she met with, 
dates, um, where she made love, stuff like that. And I had transcribed them as part of my work on the letters. And so when I was looking at the carbon, just trying to determine what was what was on it, because you know the there's raised um, bits from where the typewriter keys were pounding uh, the paper, and so like tactile you can run your fingers over it and it feels like little it feels like braille and mountains or something mm. and um, so I kind of held it up to the light and I could see the word megrams um, I saw natural history and the shrike which I knew were plath poems but I had known megrams was a was a poem that plath wrote or wrote about writing in November of 1956 but no copy of it exists so I got a magnifying glass I I got flashlights and I, you know, was like getting all forensic up in it and um, transcribing what I was seeing to the extent that I could. There's, there's a lot of overlapping uh, texts because she used and reused the carbon until I think the, uh, the, the undercopy was no longer sort of uh, bold enough. But instead of throwing it away like any normal person did uh, or would have done, they, she kept it which I guess is, is to the benefit of class scholars now because uh, we, have, we have two poems that, that uh, were on it. Now, Megrams is not completely identifiable. Uh, there's a, a large chunk of the middle of it. It's just simply illegible. But the other poem that's on there, Tour Fractory Santa Claus, um, is, is completely readable. And I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be in... Um, and the the new poems that's in the works. Ah, when's that due out? I believe 2024, but that's if everything sort of goes on schedule. I know that there, there, Mm. you know, some supply chain issues could still have an effect on, on, um, on the way things work. But I believe I've, I've read that it was 2024 that it was supposed to come out. So not, not too long, too, too, Two years from now, which isn't too long to wait. I've just just read the the, the collected writings of Asia Wevel, which you co-edited with Julie Goodspeed Chadwick. Mm-hmm. Um, how how did that project come together uh, for you, and 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 how does how does it feel for for a, someone who's worked so closely with Plath for so many years to to work on someone who's traditionally a, a, well presented as an antagonist in her story? Yeah, I felt like I was cheating on Plath. I um, wondered if that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. I oh. really, I really did. Um, so in May of 2018, just as the letters was wrapping up the second volume, um, Julie had been doing some work at Emory university and uh, they had just gotten uh, Asia Wevel's journals as, as a part of their collection. So Julie, if she wasn't the first, she was among the first people to have access to these and this was kind of a missing piece because, you know, there were letters at Emory and there were other letters sort of scattered around that she had, had, that she had access to and that other people have had access to. Um, but it was the journals were the missing sort of piece. And from, from that moment, Julie had a vision of this book that we just published. And she asked me if I would work with her on it because um, she, I, you know, I, she certainly could have gone it alone. It, it would have been just as good, if not better, because um, I don't know what I brought to it. <laughs> um, but 
yeah, so she asked me if I would work on it with her, and I was happy to do so. Um, I didn't really have any other projects going on at the moment, and it seemed uh, above and beyond anything else. Um, it seemed to me like it was going to be a, a challenge um, because I didn't have a very good impression of Assay Webble at the time. And so I thought, uh, out of fairness, I should not only work on the project, uh, but, it, but that it would help enlighten me a lot more about who she was as a person. I mean, there, there was a biography that came out, obviously, in the early 2000s by Karen and Negev, which is a very good book, I thought. Um, and, it, and it gives you a sense of who she was. I, I think that that book is a lot like Bitter Fame, where it, it is sort of, it isn't a biography of idolatry. It's, it's a biography of, um, this, this was a human being. This, mm. this human being had some really great characteristics and this human being had some really flawed things about them. And that's what I like about the Asia level biography. And that's what I actually like about Bitter Fame too. Because um, mm. Plath was not a saint. Um, but, but yeah, so it, it was the challenge of sort of, of getting over any sort of bias that I, that I had about the subject and just sort of approaching it from a different perspective. And, and so I think it was, it was pretty fulfilling in that regard. Even in a small way, felt felt almost strange reading the, the writings of Asia Wevel as a, as a Plath fan, especially because it was, it was, you know, it was, it was journals and, and, and poems it was sort of similar and letters so yeah. it's similar kind of forms in which we read Plath mm-hmm. um and I found it fascinating and and in a way kind of s- even sadder I suppose I I felt on balance uh, from my impression of um Asia's record of herself that that Plath maybe got more joy in yeah I would I think I I agree with that my my impression and I don't mean any disrespect to the Asia Wevel book state or even to Julie, but um, this this book and sort of the way it trajects makes me very sad. The letter section ends so dismally. The journal section obviously ends very dismally, um, just days before suicide. Um, and it, they're, they're very, it's, it's incomplete. I mean, there are so few letters. There are so, the journal entries are so sparse and it's, you know, you can't really compare the the writings to those of Plath because Plath's uh, it's obviously it's a very it's a more or less complete archive, uh, far more complete than than Asia Wells for for various reasons. But but for me, the joy in, in this book or her translation of the Yehuda Amiha poems, I think they're absolutely beautiful and brilliant. Um, they they deserve. They deserve. They were out of print, and they deserve to be in print. and And I'm glad, uh, beyond expression, that we were able to include them with the permission of the estate of Yehuda Amihai, because they're just so stunning. And I think they show an unknown or sort of an unrealized talent that she had um, for poetry um, and an appreciation for for it. Um, but that for me, they're the, they're the, they're the star of the book. I you know, I I like I like the book as a whole, even though I, I said it does make me a little bit sad. But that's just the story that makes me sad. Having gotten access to what we did is actually 
a good thing because for the for a very long time, as you may know, uh, she was not well known. She was sort of brushed under the carpet. Um, she was hidden. There were attempts to just obliterate her from existence. And the fact that we were able to procure so much means that that those attempts uh, just completely failed. Which and so so that's sort of that's my takeaway from the book is that um, you know you shouldn't try to destroy a person or their history or their legacy. Um, you know, and you know just like with with what Karen Kukiel did with the journals and what we did with the letters and, and all that with, with allowing Plath to speak in an unedited way, um, uh, getting, getting, getting people access to Assey Rebel's own voice is a success. But who or what, or what prompted the attempts to obliterate her memory? Was it, was it covering up? I, I, I mean, there's, it's tough. I, you know, the estate, kind of fell into Ted Hughes's hands and um, they were with him for quite a while. And so any, who knows what we don't have because they were destroyed or lost or stolen. Um, you certainly, and there, there's even one letter that he wrote to Asia Wevel saying, you know, destroy all of my letters, but she didn't. And um, she was writing a journal at the time um, that I think he meant to keep and then destroy, um, but he didn't. It's it's just remarkable that we have what we have, even though um, even though, like I said, it's you know it's incomplete. Like that, you know, there are years and years without any correspondence, and and I don't know why that is. I mean, we know there are references to letters that she wrote, but the letters don't seem to exist, and I don't know if they got lost in the mail, or if her parents or her sister or whoever the recipients were didn't keep them. But um, but for some reason, you know, you just you just have this very fragmentary life, um, and and which which may in some regards just completely mirror her own life because you know she had several marriages. She was somewhat nomadic by moving around so much between um, Israel and England and Canada and Burma and back to England and Canada, you know, and so on. So um, it's it's not it's no surprise to me that some things may have gotten lost in the shuffle and in, in, in the moves and stuff like that. Oh, t- something I meant to come back to was that you, you mentioned, I think in the, the Electra sec- uh, section that, that you used to do tours of where, um, of where Plath, Plath lived. Um, mm-hmm. how, how did you, w- when did that come about and how, how did you get into that? So I, I mean, I started visiting Plath sites in the winter of 1995, 96. And then in, in 2000, I moved to Massachusetts um, from Virginia, where I lived. And uh, I was in sort of Plath's backyard, as it were. And I, you know, I had been going for, I, I'd go to Wellesley in Winthrop. I even lived in Winthrop for a few years because um, it was cheap. And um, just as, as part of my web presence, um, I, struck up conversations and with people and they would say, Hey, I'm coming to Massachusetts. Can you show me the plus sites? I don't remember who the first person I gave a tour to was. Um, but it just, it just happened that after, like, you know, you get a little bit of positive feedback and you just kind of run with it. And that's what happened with me as I gave a tour. And I, I mean, I, 
I was pretty, uh, I was pretty hardcore about it. Like I'd come with like several books from my library, collect poems, Bowser journals and whatnot. And we'd literally just walk some streets and drive around. And we would read sections of wherever we were that were relevant and um, just trying to draw, draw out the essence of the place. And it seemed to really uh, resonate with people. And, and I, no matter how many times I did it, and I, I given tours to Americans, English people, Swedes, uh, Australians, uh, probably other, other nationalities too. I'm just blanking right now. But um, it's, it's just amazing how far and wide uh, people are willing to travel to see these places. Um, I even... Um, expenses paid gave uh, a, a tour to several Americans in England where we flew over, we, we rented a car at Heathrow and drove to North Totten, spent some time there, drove up to Heptonstall and then did, wow. some, did some days in London too. Um, really wanted to include Cambridge in that trip, but there just wasn't enough time uh, in my schedule free enough to do that. And it, it would have been just one more day, but it was just too much. Um, but that was that, you know, it's, and that's something I'd love to do again at some point in the future, uh, you know, once, once this pandemic craziness uh, slips away, but it's, it's a lot of fun and uh, just sort of, sort of seeing how people respond to these places. Um, it was, it was rewarding. And um, so that, that, those are, those are the tours. And no matter how many times I did it, it, it sort of never got stale. Uh, because I, I always loved being in places. Uh, I'm the sort of person who, you know, if, if I want to go down to Cape Cod and go to Rock Harbor, I'm going to take my shoes off and go in the water where the mussels are so I can be a mussel hunter at Rock Harbor, just like Plath was. Um, you know, in the poem, she got there before the watercolorists got there, but I'm not going to wake up that early, to be honest, to go and, and wait and wait in Cape Cod Bay. But, um, but, but there's, you really get it. A, a very rich sense of the writing and the life when you're physically standing in the same place. Did you say you'd, did you say shown Hollywood actors around as well? <laughs> yeah, I gave, um, I gave a tour to Kirsten Dunst and Dakota Fanning. Um, and then uh, two years later, I gave a tour to um, someone called Frankie Shaw. And these were all sort of in conjunction with, um, the Beljar film project that still hasn't really gone anywhere, unfortunately. I was yeah, I was talking to someone recently who was who was saying I think there's something in the in the works with Kirsten Dunst and Dakota Fanning. I was like I thought I heard that about ten years ago or or something like. I, yeah, I think ten. I think but... that, yeah, I think that tour was in 2016, and mm, okay. uh, and I mean it, I nothing really has happened to it. I, every once in a while, you see something online about how Dakota Fanning I think still wants to be involved with it, which. Mm. which would be it would be great because I, I think it should be redone the the 1979 film is is tragic um, yeah. and and i think nowadays um even if they don't do a feature film frankie shaw was working with i think showtime to do uh like a six or eight episodes um like 30 or 60 minute episodes which i i like the idea of that uh, even even like a netflix series almost um because there's, you know, in a, in, a, in a cinematic release, two hours is going to be tops and you're going to have to make a lot of cuts in order to sort of fit it all in. But with the, with a sort of a, a series, you could do, uh, 
you know, eight weeks or, or whatever of any length and really draw out the story in a more faithful and comprehensive way. That, so I, that would, I think, be the best way to do it. Um, just, in, you know, because society, you know, the way, the way that people consume all this stuff is obviously very different from the way Julia Stiles was going to do it in the, two, in the early 2000s. Um, and then from, even from the way Kirsten and Dakota were going to um, do it when they, when they were sort of in the planning phases in 2016. Did, were they talking about it explicitly at, at, at the time, or was it was it kind of a covert research trip? Uh, it was. It was. Uh, it was. I think a, a real deal supposed to happen. They had they had actors and actresses lined up to play parts. They had a script which I read. We talked. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. We talked about it on the tour, and the point of the tour was basically um, to show them like the real the real sites that are presented in the novel so that whether they filmed in Massachusetts or filmed on location somewhere else, that they could try to get the setting correct with the style of houses, with the, the sort of the way that the cities or, or towns are laid out. Um, and, and even, even the beach scene, you know, where, where Esther leaves her shoes on, on a, on a, burnt log beneath the water tower um you know just like that that's a real that's a real place and if you if you set that scene in a place that doesn't look like that jackasses like me are going to call them on it and, <laughs> um and then and then be upset and and just you know eat chocolate ice cream to console themselves so um but but so so meeting with them was was just you know hopefully a way to to say you know the, the people that read this and know this book are, and are, are they're, they're, you know, we want to see it really done well. Um, because obviously the, the, the first version was really not done well. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. I was actually thinking of making a kind of a video about it. Cause it's, it's bizarre. Oh, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal. Incomprehensible yeah. how, how cer- certain decisions got made. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough going and, you, and you're never going to get that time back, which is just unfortunate. Yeah. I, it's, it's weird that no one's had a crack at it because you, from a, from a studio perspective, you'd have to wonder like, what's the downside? It's, it remains such a popular book. And Plath has not faltered in, in her rise of sort of awareness in, in our culture, no. in our society. It's just this yeah. constant uh, escalating, um, and between the journals and even the 2003 Gwyneth Paltrow film, um, with the letters, with with all these things that are coming out, there, there's mm. just this meteoric rise, and and interest is is just when you think it's hit a peak, it, it goes up a little bit more. Um, I think Julia Stiles' project around like 2007, eight was probably the closest to, to fruition. And that's not to, I'm not trying, not trying to dismiss where, where Kirsten or Frankie Shaw were with, with their projects. But I think Julia's was closest because, um, just because of where it was. But then when the stock market crashed and everything sort of, um, that, that I think put a damper on um, Hollywood in, in an irreparable way to, to projects like the Bell Jar. 
you know, you, you started seeing sort of a remake of The Incredible Hulk every other year instead, yeah, um, yeah. which is a shame um, because the, the bell jar is, um, is, is something where, if I'm correct, the estate actually doesn't have control over the film rights. So you can do it and you don't have to worry about paying the estate. Really? Um, yeah, I think I think when I think I think I have that right. Where, whereas you know, when you're quoting something for an essay or a book, you know that is obviously under estate control, and they can charge you for that. But but I think when Ted Hughes sold the film rights, he sold the film rights. So I think the estate is is has no grounds to squash an idea yeah. or a project. Which is good and bad, I suppose, in, in terms of it, it needs be. to have the right people involved. <laughs> right, yeah. But there's actually, I think, a resurgence a little bit in um, sort of Plath and Hughes camps. Um, but I've, I think the Plath community itself, since I've been um, interested in Plath and, and got involved with it, has always been um, welcoming and helpful. And, and I, think that, I think that that is... It's 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 so I know it's helped me maintain an interest because I know that there are like-minded people out there, um, and it's always nice to talk plath with somebody. Yeah, have you ever thought about doing one on her prose at all? I mean, I know they're longer, so you can't really read the whole thing. Um, I know I'd really like to. Um, I'm I was thinking about Ocean Twelve Twelve W just after again reading it a lot for the full Fathom Five. And you are, and and if you're reading the version that's in Johnny Panic in the Bible of Dreams, you're not even reading the real version. Um, really? Yeah, because um, this this is sort of kind of what launched these ghostly archives with Gail is that um, you know we we found um, we found out that uh, it wasn't it wasn't published under the title Plath had given it, or it, and it wasn't published in the same text as Plath had given it. They at some point after her death, they edited a couple of paragraphs out, and it's not—it's not hugely significant, but but you know, they're 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 edits that that Plath didn't approve of. Obviously, she was dead, so you know, and she may have she may have ultimately decided to cut it. You know, if if they cut it for time, that's one thing. Like for the recording of the you know the, in in August of '63, it was broadcast on yeah. the BBC. Um, so they may have, maybe they cut that that out to, to trim a minute or two off, which is which is one thing. Um, I'll will send you um, I'll send you a typescript of the original um, of the original thing because uh, actually Elizabeth Sigmund owned it for the longest time, and then uh, she, it, when she passed away, it sold at auction in I think twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, um, and I, I know who has it now. I'm not at liberty to say. Um, but I know who has it now and I know it's, uh, but, but like in my prose of Plath book, that's, that's going to come out, you know, like I'm using that version of, of the, yeah. So like readers will in the future and also like he dates it to 1962 in Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams, but Plath didn't write it until around the 26th of January, 1963. It was super late, super late in her life. Um, and actually, um, when you, when you read Ocean One Two One Two W, and then you read uh, the the three poems that Plath wrote on the twenty eighth of January, Child, and the two other ones, you see there's a lot of crossover and imagery, and so that's how I that's how 
you know, I, I look at it, I look at them sort of like, um, sort of feeding off one another, um, because, because there is an overlap and, and they do sort of, they do connect up a bit. And that brings us to the end of uh, today's episode. Thank you very much to Peter K. Steinberg, my special guest for these last three podcasts. And thank you very much to yourself for listening. I'll be back shortly, but in the meantime, happy reading.